In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bravo Docket. Today we're going to do something we have never done before, and we are going to be interviewing a special guest. It's our first time having a third person on the podcast. I think this is going to be a fantastic episode, and we're going to be covering, again, all things Tom Girardi and competency. But I'm here with Monica Nguyen. She's a deputy public defender that specializes in competency law. She is the perfect person to give us insight into all things Tom Girardi, what happened here. She has a great background. I'm going to hand it off to you, Monica. You want to introduce yourself. Tell us everything about you, your experience. You have great, vast experience in this area. So I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. And thanks for reaching out and coming on with us. Yes, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've been following the Girardi trials like this. I love all things Housewives. I love all things Bravo. I love your podcast. So I'm really grateful to be here. I am a deputy public defender. I have been working solely in mental health for about 15 years. I specialize at this point in time in competency law. I have conducted or I've participated in many, many competency trials. I'm also a member of the California Public Defenders Association board. And I serve on that mental health committee. We work on legislation and things in California related to mental health law. I'm a multiple times presenter for CLEs. I presented at the National Association for Criminal Defense Lawyers in the past. And so I have quite a lot of knowledge in this area of law. And I'm very excited to talk about Tom Girardi's competency trial. Yeah. And you read the opinion, of course. You've been following I it. I did. So tell us a little bit about what a public defender is, what your role is in these types of cases, and how you come to defend individuals who are raising issues of competency before a judge. Yeah. So a public defender sounds exactly like what the title is. We are criminal defense attorneys that represent clients who fall below the poverty line. And because of their poverty status, they are not able to afford their own attorney. And in the United States of America, we are doing everything we possibly can to make trials fair. And so in that effort to make trials fair, we ensure that even people who can't afford their own attorney have an attorney paid for them by the government. And so that is what a deputy public defender is. I get cases related to competency when other deputy public defenders have their clients suffering from mental disorders ranging from intellectual disabilities to schizophrenia to neurocognitive disorders and everything in between. When they say, hey, I don't think my client is competent to understand what's happening in court or work with me in a rational way, I'm going to let the court know that. And when the court agrees there's a problem or you know, there's a concern there, the court will, what we call, declare a doubt about a client's competency and then refer that client over to mental health court. Our mental health court has a staff of about five different competency attorneys. 
And so then we get those cases to litigate the issue of competency. Okay. I mean, yeah. So you are the perfect person to talk to about all of this. Let's talk about how do you go about establishing that your client is incompetent to stand trial? Yeah, the court does a lot of that for us. And so you'll see that that happened in Mr. Girardi's case as well. The court takes on its own inquiry into whether or not a defendant is competent when the issue is raised. And the court does that by appointing qualified psychologists or psychiatrists to examine whether or not the person suffers from a mental disorder. And if they do suffer from a mental disorder, is that disorder impairing their ability to understand the nature and consequences of the proceedings? Or is that mental disorder impairing their ability to rationally assist their attorney in their case? Mm -hmm. So it's really the court's inquiry. And if we are the proponents of a finding of incompetency, then we may sometimes hire our own examiners as well. And then if the issue cannot be settled, we would present our evidence at a trial like what happened in the Girardi case. All right, let's get into Girardi then. Excellent. Yeah. (laughs) So like we said, you read the 50-page decision. You've gone through it. You have your thoughts about it. Overall, what are your initial thoughts? So my initial thoughts are that the court gave tremendous weight to the evidence that Mr. Girardi is malingering. And because the court found that he is malingering, it essentially not negated, but diminished the other evidence of Mr. Girardi's incompetency to the degree that the court then found him competent. Additionally, I thought that there was evidence that Mr. Girardi was not malingering that the court did not give great weight to. And it would have been, to my mind, more compelling of an opinion if the court dissected the evidence that Mr. Girardi was not malingering in a manner consistent with a finding of competency, because that would have been fair because it's giving weight to both sides of that. But that being said, I think the evidence that he was malingering was certainly there. And when it's there, it's very difficult for a court to ignore that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what happened here is that because there was some evidence there that he was malingering, that was sort of all that the judge could see. And not only all that the judge could see, but it's a perfect out to find him competent, right? right? And so, you know, those are my general thoughts on the findings. Well, let's talk about malingering a little bit more. It's not a term that we use in our everyday life. Can you explain what that is and how that gets tested in your experience and how you might maybe present evidence that there isn't malingering when you're faced with an allegation that the defendant is malingering? Yeah. So I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not a mental health worker. I'm an attorney that practices mental health law. So I can give you what my definition of malingering is, but it is actually a disorder that is identified and defined in the DSM-5. Mm-hmm. The DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition, and there is a diagnosis in there for malingering. And that diagnosis includes not just the feigning or exaggerating of symptoms of a mental disorder, but that the feigning or exaggerating of symptoms is for a secondary gain. 
Okay, so in order for a person to be malingering, according to the DSM-5, it's not just, hey, I'm pretending something. It's I'm pretending something because I want to get something out of pretending something. And so there was quite a lot of evidence in this case with Mr. Girardi that he wasn't, in fact, malingering because there wasn't a secondary gain. And when I talk about that, I'm referring specifically to the conservatorship proceedings. In the conservatorship proceedings, Mr. Durati actually objected to being placed on conservatorship. And in order to object to be placed on conservatorship, you have to say, hey, I'm good. Everything's fine with me. I don't need a conservator. And that is the very opposite of malingering. He's saying, no, I'm cool. I'm good. Don't put me on conservatorship. I don't need someone to help me out. Right. That was his argument. And the court in the conservatorship proceeding said, no, thank you, Mr. Girardi. You are actually not good. And you actually do need someone to be your conservator and make decisions for you for your own well-being. And so if we look at the conservatorship proceedings, we can see that there is, at least with respect to those court proceedings, evidence of Mr. Girardi not malingering. And so when I looked at the 50, I think it was 52 page opinion of the court in this competency trial, I did not see much evidence of Mr. Girardi's statements and arguments in the conservatorship proceeding at this competency trial. And that was actually a really great area to bring to light in this competency trial to say, hey, no, at the time that your honor is actually examining in this timeline from 2017 onward. There, there was conservatorship proceedings that interceded in that timeline. And at those proceedings, he argued the exact opposite of mm-hmm. malingering. He was trying to say he's all good. And so that was sort of an opportunity that looks like it was missed. I wasn't present at the trial. I just read the opinion. But it looks like that was an area that defense counsel could have capitalized on and maybe and maybe perhaps didn't. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even, you know, we've we've talked about the competency proceedings and then talked about the conservatorship proceedings and gone through the timeline for everyone on the podcast. But I didn't even think that that could be evidence that he wasn't malingering. I haven't thought about it that way. What are your thoughts as a public defender and as an attorney? What are your thoughts on the court and the prosecution here focusing so much on the timeline and how things sort of started to unravel when shit hit the fan, for lack of a better <laughs> term. <laughs> Why I'm like, can't don't we say, bring in shit say, hit the fan Don't say in court. shit, don't say shit. <laughs> and there Please we go. do say shit. Please do. Thank you. So in terms of the timeline, I think that great weight is given to this timeline, but mental health is not a linear progression always. And that's where I think the core is incorrect in providing too much weight to this timeline. And the reason I say that is because the defense expert witnesses pretty much all agreed that Mr. Durati was suffering from some type of degenerative neurocognitive deficits and impairments. And those impairments do not necessarily present themselves in a linear fashion. It doesn't mean in 2017 or 2016, he's good. And then 2017, he's a little worse. And in 2020, a little bit more worse. And in 2023, worse than he's ever been before. And that's not the way cognitive decline always works, maybe for some, but not for all. And in fact, some cognitive disorders and diseases, a person can present sort of okay in a lot Mm -hmm. of spheres and then not okay in other spheres. 
or sort of okay on January 1st and then not okay on January 15th and then sort of okay again on February 1st. And so because there is not a linear progression to the disease always, putting too much weight on this timeline could be putting too much weight on evidence that doesn't point in the direction that you want it to. Right. Like putting on blinders because of the timeline. Yeah. What do you think was some evidence that the judge didn't focus on that she maybe should have? I I know the opinion may not have it in there because obviously that means she wasn't focusing on it. But in your experience, what is something that you hope a judge focuses more on to find or yeah, not to find, but, you know, just focuses more on period? Yeah, I would have liked see her wrestle with the issue of the conservatorship because, in effect, she's sort of serving as a court of appeal for the conservatorship court, right? The conservatorship court has made a finding that Mr. Girardi is too impaired to conduct sort of these basic life functionings to the degree that he has to live in an assisted living facility. And here comes this judge and she's like, nah, he's baking and we're good. We're good to go, right? Mm -hmm. So she's kind of acting like a court of appeals for that lower state court. And if she's going to do that, I would have liked her to wrestle with that issue a little bit in her opinion and say why she was discounting those lower court findings or those state court findings, right? That would have been really important for me to say, okay, well, she wrestled with it and she just doesn't agree with that and she's making a different finding, right? So that's one area where I think she could have done more. Another area that I really was struck by when I looked at this whole malingering issue is that the government in this case made a plea to have Mr. Girardi undergo a personality inventory, which is a really long test. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a very long test and it's it's the, it's called the MMPI. And in that test there's uh, validity measures and there's indications as to whether or not Mr. Girardi is lingering during the administration of that test. And what I found striking was that this is a test the government wanted And the results of that test showed that he was not malingering. And so that's very interesting because that test is very well known, very well generally accepted examination in this field. And for that test to show not malingering, I would have liked that to be highlighted more by the court Mm -hmm. and more. I would like to know why she discounted that. And then in addition to that, when you look, when I looked at the opinion, Dr. Wood noted that she gave Mr. Girardi numerous performance validity tests. And what performance validity tests are basically measuring, is this person giving their best effort on these tests? So I'm testing their competency and their neuropsychological functioning. Are they actually really trying here or are they faking this or are they, or are they not putting forth their best effort? And when you look at those scientific tests, they show that he was giving his best effort. And Dr. Wood was noted to testify that there was an absence of poor effort, meaning he was giving his best effort on these tests. What I found even more interesting was then when Dr. Goldstein gave that testimony and the Dr. Goldstein was the government's witness, Dr. Goldstein also stated that Mr. Girardi's performance validity testing showed that he was giving his best effort. 
So we have two different examiners, one for the government, one for the defense, both saying he's giving his best effort. Having a person give their best effort on these tests is literally inconsistent with the finding of malingering, right? Because a person who is malingering is going to be intentionally giving poor effort because they're going to want to appear as though they cannot do what you're asking them to do. They cannot answer the questions appropriately. And instead of these tests showing that he's giving poor effort, these tests are showing that he's giving his best effort. And so when I look at the court's opinion, the courts, the court essentially gave that short shrift and said, well, I and didn't really examine the impact of the performance validity testing. Mm-hmm. And that testing, again, showed that he was not malingering at that time that the testing was done. So this is not at all my area of expertise, of course. But could he be giving his best effort to lie in these performance tests? If he's giving, if it shows that he's giving his best efforts, could it be that he's giving a good effort, but to lie? Yes. Yeah, so the, there's different types of PVTs, performance validity testing. And for example, like one of them is like a dot counting test where you literally just put a square in front of the patient and you there's dots on the square and they literally have to just count and tell you how many dots there are. Or where there's like something called the Tom, the test of memory malingering, where you go through pictures and you ask like, what's the name of that? And, you know, there's these very basic tests that are normed and standardized for people who even suffer from dementia because they're so easy that, you know, even people suffering from dementia can perform well on these tests. And they're they're there not to measure whether the person correct per se. It's are they giving their best effort? So these PVTs cannot measure whether he's lying well or giving his best effort in lying. It's while I'm testing his neuropsychological functioning in other areas, can I rely on those test results because I know that he was giving his best effort on those tests? And I know that he was giving his best effort on those tests because on the PVT that I embedded within the testing show that he's giving his best effort. Okay, so it's embedded in... The testing yes. for, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So like, for example, the MMPI has validity measures embedded in the MMPI. Mm-hmm. And on those validity measures, he scored in the area of not malingering. Got so, it. Okay. Yeah. And again, I'm not a psychologist. You know, I could be, I, this is my personal experience having done hundreds of these cases. Right. Right. Let's talk about we were talking about this not while we were recording, but let's let's bring it into the pod. What were your thoughts on Tom Girardi's outburst during trial when he, he used an expletive in the middle of his competency <laughs> trial? Yes. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. So typically when we have clients who use expletives in court, it's usually because I have a client suffering from psychosis and their executive functioning is poor because of the disease progression is severe and they will oftentimes have an inability to control that outside voice and um, so they can have outbursts and things like that and that's relevant to the issue of competency if a person can't comport themselves to the standards and norms of the courtroom that kind of tends to show that they're not competent and so in this trial, what happened was when the prosecutor, to my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when the prosecutor was cross-examining Dr. Wood, Mr. Girardi said, F you. And then the prosecutor said that he wanted that in the record, right? Right. And so 
then the prosecutor asked Dr. Wood about whether or not that would show that Mr. Girardi is tracking the conversation that's being had at that time and it, that he is tracking the conversation and he's getting upset about it. And therefore, he shouted out or he stated the expletive as a way to express his displeasure at what the prosecutor was asking. Right. And so my issue with that is that when a defendant in a mental competency hearing shouts an expletive, there really is no context for that expletive. We cannot say the reason he said F you is because he's mad that we're talking about him in the way that we are. Because the reason he said F you could be that he thinks that he's at in and out and not getting the burger that he ordered because he's so impaired, right? We don't know why he's saying F you. And we can't jump into his head and find out why he's saying F you. And so us assigning value to that as competent people really isn't appropriate. And that is kind of what Dr. Wood should have said when the prosecutor was questioning her about it. She should have said, hey, I don't know why he said F you. I can't assign value to that. I can't say that he said F you because he's mad at you from what you're asking me. So just the simple fact that he said F you it really doesn't have any meaning to me because I don't know why he said it. Right. What was her response? I can't remember off the top of my head, but what did she, do you remember what she said his reason was? My recollection is that Dr. Wood said something like, well, that's not appropriate. We sh he should, you know, respect you as the prosecutor here or something to that effect. I'm searching for the word respect in this opinion to see if I can find it. Oh, well, I was just Googling Tom Girardi F you <laughs> to find it. That's probably a better way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I think a better response would have been from a scientific perspective. We cannot assign value to the comment F you. But what we can say is that objectively we know that if you're going to conduct yourself in a manner consistent with courtroom expected decorum, stating F you is not consistent with that. And the fact that he said F you would then, because of that, be more consistent with the finding of incompetency. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. would have been the fairer response. I can't recall off the top of my head what Dr. Wood responded. I think on cross-examination, they asked, does that illustrate the government's argument that Tom can easily follow court proceedings and is therefore competent to stand trial? And Wood said yes. But it also speaks to poor courtroom behavior. Okay, so... Yeah, that's a problem, right? It's a problem answering yes to that question because mm -hmm. embedded within that question is the assumption of context, right? Embedded within the question is the assumption that he's directing F you to the prosecutor because he's mad about what's being said. And again, we, we don't know that. He could be saying F you because he hit his foot under the, under the table. You know, we literally have... No idea why he said F you. And that should have been the objection by the defense, right? There's no foundation for that question because we don't know why he said that. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess I just want listeners to know we're not sitting here trying to find a reason to find Tom incompetent. I think we're just analyzing what happened in court from your perspective and expertise. So just want to flag that in case anyone's like, why are you... Yeah, I I hate to Monday morning quarterback because that's actually very true. I wasn't there. 
Mm -hmm. to watch this. I didn't read a transcript of the testimony. For all I know, Dr. Wood did say that. Dr. Wood did say, hey, I can't assign context to that statement. I'm only reading the opinion and trying to extrapolate what I can from that. That being said, Dr. Wood agreed with the statement that the FU comment was significant, as you said, because it, quote, showed an appreciation of what the prosecutor was saying and what he's being accused of. No, FU does not show an appreciation of what the prosecutor would say and what he's being accused of. No, it does not. Again, mm-hmm. because we don't know why he said it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, she can't confidently say that. He could just be like grumpy. Like right. A grumpy guy. Just he might be very hungry. I also get hangry. I, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it happens. It's a thing. And we can't deny that. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a great point. What about, so you're a listener of the podcast and you heard after I went to that hearing me say, you know, why wasn't Erica, why why didn't she provide a statement to neurologists and the psychologists involved? She would probably be the best person to know whether his mental health was in decline. Why wouldn't she give one? We talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but you, you had thoughts on it, and I'd love for you to share. Sure, yeah. I I did hear that podcast, and I do listen to your podcast religiously because you guys are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I really do look forward to it. Um, and I do think that there's a possibility that the reason that she did not give a statement and or testify is because she's invoking her right against self-incrimination. And the reason I think that is because if she testified in a manner that was helpful to Mr. Girardi's argument that he was presently incompetent, then that would involve testimony that he couldn't understand basic basics of life functioning. And she would have to explain that and back that up with specific examples of when he showed mental deterioration. And the reason that's problematic for her and involves the right against self-incrimination is because at the same time that she would be presenting evidence of his mental deterioration, she was receiving millions of dollars from him that was being deposited in that, I think it was called EJ Global or something Mm -hmm. of that nature, Mm -hmm. allegedly. So then the question becomes, okay, you're telling me right now that he's been in mental decline for however many years, and you know he's been in mental decline because he evidenced that with these very specific examples of severe mental impairment, it begs the question, why are you then taking his money? (laughs) Right, right. How do you feel okay receiving funds from him? And how do you feel okay not raising the alarm that he's also taking care of all of these other clients of his knowing that he's having this severe mental impairment. And so rather than jump into that, I think it was smart of her to not give any statement because she has the right not to incriminate herself. Right. Um, And so I think those were some of the things that came into play with that decision. But she did on the show say that he was suffering. I I don't remember what, I think since the accident, since the accident that came up in this trial, or this competency proceedings, she said that he was in mental decline. So she's already said it. So, I mean, personally, if it's true, and that's how she felt at the time, she's already stepped in it. She's already stepped in the fact that she was taking money and not really raising any alarm bells. Yeah, no, and I think you make a fair point because I 
To the best of my recollection, there was even a point where she said, yeah, he seems okay when you're talking to him, but all the stories he's telling are the same stories he's told for however many years. And that gets to the crystallized knowledge that the witnesses were testifying to in the trial. He has fantastic recollection of knowledge of things that have passed because those have crystallized in his memory. So to your point, Erica had already stepped in it. (laughs) She has already said, no, what's happening here is cognitive decline. But she didn't go... She did not make efforts to come to his aid, at least ostensibly from what we can see, because she wasn't a part of these proceedings, although she did creep into the proceedings by way of anecdotal evidence, right, of of Mm -hmm. a conversation that was allegedly had with her. But no, she didn't actually come to his aid in a meaningful way by presenting testimony or written evidence. I mean, but I guess she didn't say it under oath, and that's the difference. You know, she's not going to get in trouble for saying it on a show. That's right. Your public musings really are not evidence that can be beneficial. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really quite sad that you're, and this is just commentary, but if you're married to somebody for a couple of decades, you would expect them to come to your aid. So it's unfortunate that she wasn't able to do that, but she probably wasn't able to do that because it would incriminate her in some Mm -hmm. way, you know? Right. Right. And I mean, Angela has said this before on the podcast. And unfortunately, she was having computer issues. She was joining us and then had to draw. But she said it on the podcast before that, you know, Erica had the story about his decline and ended up divorcing him. And I think Angela's said before, like, that's just horrible. Like, if he was suffering, you just go and divorce him. That's the worst thing you could do. But yeah, none of this came up, of course, in these proceedings. We're just having a little aside about the show. Yeah, it's Um, unfortunate, you know. It's not a good look. Not a good look. (laughs) I mean, but there's a lot that has not been a good look. So many, Um, so many unfortunate looks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you had some other points, I think, about the order. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, about this 52-page order on Tom's competency? Yeah. One thing that I wanted to just throw out there is that Dr. Goldstein, who was a psychologist for the prosecution, based on my review of the court's opinion, that doctor watched the Hulu documentaries mm-hmm. that essentially, <laughs> they, they're they not good for Mr. Girardi. And what I want to say about that is that psychologists, just like everybody else, have to be very careful about bias. Yeah. Okay, and it's a real thing, and I've researched it myself in terms of examiner bias regarding specific charges, because I have to be careful. There are some examiners I cannot trust to examine my client in an unbiased way because they just show a preference for the prosecution regarding certain charge defenses. And so you have to be careful and understand that and acknowledge that. And what I was uncomfortable with respect to Dr. Goldstein is that Dr. Goldstein went out looking at at documentaries that specifically paint Mr. Girardi in a very bad light. Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of bias, I'm not clear on why you would do that. It's like if I'm going to a therapist and that therapist decides that they want to look up every bad thing I've ever done, right? right? <laughs> and then, I, and then I, I'm expected to get a fair shake with this person, right? I'm not going to get a fair shake, even no matter how much they think they can give me a fair shake. They can't because they're right. already biased against me. And so the fact that this doctor watched those documentaries under the guise of, oh, I'm watching it to see his functioning at these times is really problematic because even if that's correct, they're still bias producing videos. Right. They were not they were not made for court. Right. <laughs> they're not, they're not yeah. made for court. They're made for the specific purpose of entertaining. And a lot of entertainment, you need to have a villain, right, to make right. it interesting. And Girardi is the villain in those in those documentaries. And so the fact that Dr. Goldstein watched them, it, for me, I thought that was that was difficult. And it wasn't addressed in the opinion in any way with respect to bias causing. Right. That's a great point. I mean, it's like when you have a set of jurors, I mean, obviously, I don't think the psychologists have the same instruction that you're not allowed to go and consume external commentary on the subject matter. Jurors, you know, you can't go out and research the issue. You have to sit and only listen to the evidence presented. But even so, I think that's a great point. Even if the psychologists and neurologists and the professionals who examined Tom and gave testimony here didn't get an instruction from the court or the judge that they couldn't go and consume this external media, it's still a good point that it should have been challenged during the proceedings or at least focused on by the judge. That's excellent. I hadn't even thought about that. Well, and the reason it's meaningful to me is because in our courtroom, we have such a sophisticated way of litigating these cases that our judge actually is the gatekeeper of all the evidence that the doctors receive. So if we want to share something with the doctors, we have to file a motion to ask the court for permission to do so. And then the court keeps a record of everything we give these doctors. And so down to whether or not they even get the police reports, depending on how much likelihood for bias there is if they do receive and read the reports. And so the fact that the this doctor was able to get that, the access to those documentaries is problematic. But that court didn't think so, I don't think. You know, I don't I don't know that that issue was raised. No. And there was a lot of, I think, external media that was consumed by multiple professionals in this instance. Like we talk about on the episode, on the first episode we did after the opinion came out, like the podcast interview that he did. And then I think the CLE that he moderated so I don't know. I think there were a lot of external influences. but Well, in terms of the prosecution and the evidence that they presented with respect to those podcasts and the CLE, I actually did think that that was pretty compelling evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I didn't watch the CLE and I didn't hear the podcast, but assuming that they showed Mr. Girardi competently navigating those discussions and moderating that technical language of the CLE, I do think that's very compelling. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess one argument could be, well, they involve crystallized knowledge. So that's knowledge that he gained during a period in which he had no cognitive decline. And so therefore he could comment on those things based on his crystallized knowledge. But 
That being said, if he's commenting in a sophisticated way, that's going to be, to me, very compelling evidence that he is competent, right? Right. Yeah. I didn't watch the CLE moderation. I think that one might have been a, more compelling than the podcast. I listened to the podcast and it was him going over his trial tips, which doesn't really take a lot of navigation for new questions right. or new experiences or instances. To me personally, I didn't think that had a lot of weight, but maybe moderating a panel because you have to ask questions on the spot and chew on what's being presented. So I don't know. I, I, I kind of want to go find it at some point and go watch it. Maybe p- we'll play some of it in the podcast. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is then if you were to take that um, video evidence of the CLE, you would have to juxtapose it against the video evidence of the 2017 break-in police interview when police were investigating mm. that break-in. And in the opinion, the court actually noted that he seemed to have diff- cognitive difficulties with respect to that. And so, you know, you have two pieces of video evidence, one that seems to show that he's doing okay, and one that seems to show that he's not doing as okay. And Mm so do they cancel each other out? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know either. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the 2017 one was before any of this came out. So Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. like he had a reason to be, to appear confused. Well, and that, yeah. And that gets back to the malingering issue, because if he is reporting a break in and police are there to investigate that, you would think that he would want to do everything and anything to facilitate that investigation. Right. Because it's only to his benefit to do so. And in a situation where it's only to his benefit to recall, he's having objective difficulties recalling. And so that does show that there is cognitive impairment there. Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know the reason why he's having difficulties recalling, right? He could just be really tired. Maybe he didn't sleep or there's all sorts of reasons, right? Yeah. But it's evidence that could tend to support a finding of cognitive impairment. Anything else from the opinion? So for me, what I'm very curious to watch is whether or not the other cases that Mr. Girardi is involved in where he's the defendant, whether or not this finding of competency is going to affect the findings of competency in those cases. There's one other case, right? I, to my yeah, there's one other federal criminal case in Illinois. Okay. So are those defense attorneys going to raise the issue of competency? And if they are, they going to get the transcripts from this hearing and do it a different way or litigate the issue in the exact same way or maybe have other experts, things like that? Because to my mind, if I was one of those attorneys, I would definitely raise the issue of competency because it's an issue and you can't just not raise the alarm when there's a real issue there. Right. I think they did already, but it the proceedings were stayed. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't do it the same way that it was done. Yeah, or do it this way. I mean, we can always improve, right? We're never perfect. And so maybe do it this way and then add a little, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, does this finding have any weight in the proceedings there? I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I honestly can't answer that question. But to my understanding, I don't think a finding as to competency in one jurisdiction would per se apply mm-hmm. to all other jurisdictions. Right. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, federal I guess, jurisdictions. Yeah. I guess the state court finding of needing a conservatorship didn't really carry that much weight in these yeah. proceedings. So, yeah. And what we have to understand is defendants have a constitutional right to be competent on each individual case because each individual case theoretically involves different charges and different evidence and different mm. standards. Mm-hmm. So even if a person is competent in one case, it doesn't mean they're necessarily competent in another case because that other case could be far more complex right. than the one case they're found competent on. Right. Yeah. That one's about the Lion Air victims. This one here is about victims in California involved in five separate matters. So, yeah, great point. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, he was found competent. Can, or in your experience, would you use still his mental decline in his defense going into trial now? Like, how do you foresee them proceeding now with this, but still with the fact that he has some mental decline? Yeah, I, that is a question that goes to his intent to commit the underlying charges right? Did he have the ability to form the specific intent to commit the crimes? And as to that, I don't know enough about the Mm -hmm. underlying charges and whether or not his cognitive impairments could have or did affect. But certainly, you know, with every crime, there is an act and there's an intent requirement. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what, if any, impact the cognitive decline had on his ability to form the intent to commit the crimes. Yeah. And that I don't know. I would have to, you know, learn a lot more about the case. Yeah. I mean, the indictment has some pretty harrowing communications that he had with the victims. So and that does go to the issue of intent. Right. So if you're if you're trying to intentionally lie about why you're not giving money to these victims The first question is, do you understand that you have the money? Do you understand that they're owed the money? And then why didn't you give them the money? And at least as to that, those recordings seem to show that he did have the understanding, right? Right. So, but again, I can't comment on that because I don't know all of the different facts and circumstances around the recordings or even the charges in their totality, you know? Right, right. And we'll just have to wait and see what they do with that and how they argue it. I know I'm going to be watching it very closely. Are you going to be watching the proceedings? Or I know we can't watch them, but you know what I mean. Keep, yeah, keeping an eye I, on them. I'm definitely going to keep an eye on them. And I'm also going to keep an eye on whether or not there's another competency hearing in the other federal. Yeah, if and when that happens, we'll have to have you back on to talk about that one. That'd be really fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I think We should wrap this up, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and give us all of your opinions. This was so insightful, and I'm very grateful that you reached out to us. Can you let people know where to find you? You have an Instagram. I do, and I need to be more active on it, and I will after the, it'll be my new 2024 (laughs) New Year's resolution, but I am at Mental Health Lawyer on Instagram. Yeah, we'll put that in the episode description so people can find you. Great. Thank you. Yeah, thank well, you. thank you, Monica. This was thank awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network. <laughs>